0: This is Ben Guest, and this is Ben Bo's podcast. Got a great interview today with Andre Alvarez. Andre and I talk basketball, metacognition, knowing what we don't know, similarities and differences between chess, poker, basketball. We go deep, deep into the evaluation and productivity inefficiencies in the NBA. You should think of this interview as a spiritual sequel to the interview that I did with Professor David Berry. Both my work and Dre's work draws on Professor Berry's work, and the formula, winds produced per 48 Minutes, that he published in the fantastic book, Wages of Wins. So if you haven't yet, you may want to go back and listen to that podcast, because we reference Professor Berry's work quite a bit, especially earlier in the podcast. We also reference the e-book that I just wrote and published, and that book is titled My Journey into the World of Sports Gambling by Ben Guest, and as I say in the episode, I've never been on sports. I don't know anything about this world, and it was certainly an interesting experience. The book is seems to be doing pretty well on Amazon. as an Amazon Kindle book. So again, you can find that online at the... On, you can find that on Amazon, and it's titled My Journey into the World of Sports Gambling by Ben Guest. You can find Dre's work at boxscoregeeks.com fantastic basketball content, and you can find Dre online at Nerd Numbers on Twitter. So, enjoy. Anyway, Dre, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, yeah, th- thanks for having me. This uh, came together super quickly, and uh, I, I hope it's good stuff.
0: Yeah, no, you were a mensch, uh, We just met each other by email about five hours ago, thanks to Professor Barry, and uh, we were trying to work out a a, t- a day in time and then he just said hey about how about 10 minutes and so uh here we are you're in wisconsin right and i'm in namibia
1: uh, yeah you know super, this is one of the funnier ones where i think normally in u.s for recording this stuff wisconsin close to we're central time but you know close to east coast a lot of the people I talk to are Pacific. So when I say, Hey, do you want to meet later in the night? They're like, perfect. I'm, you know, at seven o'clock my time. I think you said it was like three in the morning here, So this is one of the few times yeah. and, and you happen to catch me on an off day. I'm i uh, I'm taking the day off cause it's spring breakout here. And so that, that's why, why this all worked out. Normally I'd be, I can't do during the day. That's why it's a little jealous. You got a uh, Dave Barry on the podcast to your points. Uh, if you're listening to this show first, I don't know why but I'm coming right after Jonathan Weiler and Dave Barry, uh, two fantastic guests I've had on the box score geek show as well. And, you know, I listened to those and was like, Oh yeah. I mean, if, if you were going to try and reach out to someone to ask them to podcast, and then you're like, by the way, I can show you that I've done this twice already really well. I was like, Oh yeah, this is mm-hmm. as opposed to just, you know, As someone who's podcast, I understand when you cold call someone on the internet and try to say, "Hey, want to be on my podcast?" You might get the, I don't know, but yeah, the 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 ones you've got, you're at what nine episodes now? They've been great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think I've listened to, I think I've listened to four, and I might might have to
0: talk more about one in a second when we get further in the show. Are you a fan of the television show The Wire?
1: Uh, that is one of the few major good ones I have not seen. And I've heard, you know, I've heard amazing things. I've heard good stuff. And I just, I don't know, t- TV's weird. I, I end up rewatching stuff. But what, uh, you're going to say something about what season three, I think that's a common thing that comes up.
0: Um, what it, what I was going to say is, yeah, it's a great show. Greatest show ever made. You'll you'll love it. There's a, in season four, and season five, there's a character, anybody who's a wire this. there's a character named Bodie. And he's sort of been, he's a drug dealer, been affiliated with a big crew, but they all got arrested or killed. So now he's sort of building up his own corner by himself. Um, so that's what I'm doing. I'm building up my little podcasting corner here. What are some of your favorite was, TV shows of all time?
1: Uh, let's see, I've been re Scrubs, which was kind of weirder than that. In the pandemic, a podcast came out of that. So that's one of my favorite. And let's see, um, really been enjoying the new Marvel stuff. So WandaVision and Captain... Or uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier has been good. I mean, it's kind of weird. I, I kind of just end up rewatching stuff that I know, and then occasionally catching new stuff. Streaming is is so weird. Um, it's such a weird world now for anybody that you know. You and I, I think, are, aren't, aren't that far. I think you're four to eight years in front of me in terms of of schooling. But just yeah, remembering the old days of video cassette and just having to enjoy what you got, or you mm-hmm. missed one episode of a TV show and you had to wait for syndication or rerun.
0: Yeah, I'm 46, so I grew up in the in the VCR era for sure, VCR, HBO era. Um, so you know, before YouTube or, or any of that. Yeah, um, it's funny how, especially during the pandemic, I, I'm the same way that I find myself rewatching my favorite movies that I've seen a million. Times. You sort of want that comfort food rather than you know thinking about something new. It's just sort of there's so much shit to think about. Let me just put my brain on autopilot and get some comfort food.
1: Well also I think um I've heard other people do this where you kind of have it as music. So, you know, I've got the two monitor setup. And so if you have something on that you've already watched, it's kind of background noise and then if you want to get your mind into something if you're coding or whatever, writing, you you don't have to pay attention whereas if you're watching something brand new, especially something engaging, it's, it's kind of hard to, you know, be working on Excel spreadsheet or coding at the same time. So I think, I think I've heard that's kind of common is to have something on in the background. And so that's why, you know, Scrubs, I've seen it a million times. I can watch it again. If I miss what just happened, I'm going to go, oh, yeah, this is the episode or blah and blah. Whereas if I'm trying to watch something like, you know, I, I mentioned WandaVision or Falcon and the Winter Soldier and those two, it's like, oh, I, I find myself,
0: you know, I lose productivity because I actually get engaged in the show. So that raises an interesting question. One of the topics generally for this podcast and one of the things I'm interested in is the creative process and writing and, and doing creative work or just doing work in general, labor in general. So I can't work if I have anything in the background that I, I can have music that doesn't have lyrics and that's it. But anything with voices or you know anything that I have to sort of separate any brain power for. I can't do any work. I can't do work efficiently like that. Is is it different for you?
1: Yeah. Like I said, uh, usually podcasts, uh, you know, like having those on, like just mm-hmm. during the workday, you know, basically talk radio on, in the background. And mm-hmm. like I said, you know, after hours, after work, you know, I'll, I'll have something on, but that's because I'll agree it, the, all the data agrees. We can't multitask. We're not good at it. Mm-hmm. And I know that, but it's, you know, it's the kind of, Cheating and kind of lying to yourself, where you're like, "I'm going to relax and multitask," although I'm I'm in the same boat where you do definitely recognize when you actually get in, you know, flow or whatever, where you're really going. That's when you, you know, I'll I'll notice just that I've instinctively paused the TV, the music, whatever, and I'm just going. So, I think overall, I agree with you. I I can listen to voices in the background and do stuff, and in some, it's kind of weird. I don't know if you've ever had this or how much, but sometimes like if you're in a place with like some ambient white noise almost think like coffee shop um it used to be the case where if i had meetings at at work i haven't had this anytime recently but at older jobs where i'd code you'd be in a meeting that you weren't really needed for except maybe the last five minutes and so of course everybody multitask but just the background noise it's like it almost was more efficient but that's because you weren't paying attention to the voices but it was a, a really effective form of ambient back background noise that was that you weren't going to if this makes any sense that you weren't going to focus on at all whereas like music you can find yourself singing along or whatever and
0: and that's definitely hijacking your brain boy isn't being in flow state one of the best feelings there is
1: yeah i'd I'd say good in bags you look up like what what did i just do (laughs) your your back aches
0: because you've been sitting for two hours
1: or also, I, I know this one's always rough is uh, now now more get, getting older, right? I got wife and kid, uh, you know, when you're younger and you get into that, you just pull an all nighter. I used to do that a lot. And now it's like you you kind of get into it and then someone needs your attention and you're irritable and you don't want to like yell at them. So it's kind of a, but it's, it's nice when you get that and you get stuff done. Yeah.
0: Forgive me, Dre. I don't think I know. What, what kind of work do you do?
1: Well, I'm a software developer. And so actually that was uh the funny thing, the whole getting into all of this, um, it all goes back to Dave Barry, same as you, I think, mm-hmm. is I I was in Colorado and I was finishing up my master's, didn't, didn't get the PhD, you know, I, I'm lesser than as opposed to you, Dave, and Jonathan who all have PhDs. Yeah. Uh, but I was getting my master's degree and I was a, a basketball fan. Mm-hmm. And my mom gave me a copy of, I believe it's Blink, in the extended copy of the book blink so not the first edition but the second one he actually mentions his work with dave berry and in that he just kind of like mentions that the big story that kind of caught on was uh alan iverson Mm -hmm. right and so but this was key for me is because i was in colorado at the time was a big nuggets fan and the Nuggets traded Andre Miller for Allen Iverson. And by the way, on on your podcast with Dave, you you discussed this, Be, and I, I I loved how you phrased it because I agree. It's it's we we don't get to see this normally where it is, Allen Iverson is a starting guard for you know uh, guard. Point you can guard. just call him a guard. He's a point yeah. guard, shooting guard. Point if you look at his. Because his assist numbers are really weird. I mean, he's qualified as a shooting guard, right? If you look at most of the things, but if you look at his passes and, tu- and I'm sure if we have the touch data for him back then, we you know he kind of just missed the boat on the newer data. He looks just like a point guard. Andre Miller's our starting point guard. I think uh, I think what um, we lost a back. How am I dropping his name? I feel really bad. He's really he's one of the shortest players, but yeah, ba- basically it was a one-to-one trade. We 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 lost a starting guard for a starting guard they replaced each other exactly. Um, one of them's a star. One of them's a good role player. And, you know, um, I was right there for it. And it didn't click, right? You you go, what, what the heck just happened? We're supposed to be a contender. We, we were a mid-40s win team. We're a contender away from winning. We just picked up a contender. What happened? And then it just so happened that I had had kind of in the back burner, Dave Barry's work from Um, from Blink. And then, so I actually tracked him down. So as I mentioned, like did software engineering, basically I was kind of like trying to learn databases um, for a job I had, because I had just gotten a job as a GIS analyst. And when I started job searching out of college, I told my wife, I don't want to do anything with databases and I don't want to do anything with web development. The first place that hired me was a database place. (laughs) And then kind of shortly after I realized I had all these side projects I do, and they just live on my desktop. And I said, I want to share these. So I started doing web development. And then the niche I kind of fell into was basketball stuff. And I kind of had some basketball stuff I wanted to maybe do. And then what ended up happening with Dave Barry, he actually gets credit for this in the sense that maybe um, you and I, you, you and I are talking kind of funny, where if you want to talk, our blogging origin stories are very overlapping in that You're basically like, I had Dave Barry's work on the back burner. I kind of fell into, you fell into gambling. Mine was much simpler. Dave was running a contest for a second book, Stumbling on Wins, to to predict who the best player individual game was going to be. And I was trying to do this in Excel. And I said, this is impossible. I said, this is too much work. And I said, I'm going to write some code to do it for me and kind of started pinging Dave to ask how I would do that. And like I said, this overlaps with me trying to teach myself databases, teach myself web development, and kind of wound up being one of my first projects that I put on the web, started working with Dave there. And so, yeah, that's kind of how
0: all that happened. And like I said, it all, all goes back to software development. So that actually brings something up that, that I wanted to talk to you about. And I may cut this out. This may get too into the secret sauce as it were. But what I initially pinged you on through Box Score Geeks, which you never got, was just an inquiry: How much would it cost to hire you to take what you have? Because with I think with a few tweaks, it becomes even more predictive. I mean, as we both know, wins produces a descriptive statistic, and it works perfectly, and it also works pretty well as a predictive. Uh, um, metric, but with a few tweaks, I think it could be even more predictive. So what, what I pinged you about was, um, could I hire you to 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 take what you've built and add sort of a couple sliders? One would be just for the past ten games, right? Because maybe um, maybe La, uh, Lamelo Ball, you know, started his rookie year just all over the place, but then after December kind of calmed down, or after January kind of calmed down, is playing um, really well. So being able to sort of adjust the statistics, the statistical profile for the last 10 games, the last five games, the last three games, which would also help with players coming off injury. So CJ McCollum, I think, is above 200 for WP48, but he's been injured. And of course, the first few games coming back from injury, you're always not as, or usually not as efficient or productive so being able to adjust that would give the um would give the the metric even more fidelity and, and more predictive power i think
1: so i'm trying to think just on the off chance you cut that this is a really good um, oh, this is a really good uh we're giving shit we away though <laughs> uh, no so so sorry I just to think. okay so as you're mentioning I actually want to get into this uh regardless so this would you transition well sure so one thing the the easy the e- the other easy end you have um is you you wrote a book um which you know is a really quick read actually uh, I just went over it i'm I'm curious about because I think what you're selling it for what 99 cents mm-hmm. and so I'm curious your your long-term goal because I, I think obviously the book's not the huge pull—you're you're not looking to become a New York Times best-selling author uh, with that, um, but but the key end result of that is that basically you've been making sports bets uh, and, and selling your picks. You
0: you you right. be—I actually haven't, haven't made bet. a bet at all, nor do I have any interest. Just making yeah. picks in the same way that Vegas is the middleman. I want to be the middleman. Like you have you have people that want to bet over here, and you have Vegas over here. And I'm in the middle saying, I have picks that historically are hitting at an elite rate um, and and selling those picks. I don't wanna bet. I I don't wanna go anywhere near that rabbit hole.
1: That's interesting. Uh, Okay, so that's fascinating on many, many fronts to get down. So one thing that I I love and that you have respect for that I have found in the wins produced discussion Because what what you just pointed out is is things that could make the wins produce formula better, but recognizing it as a descriptive stat. Mm -hmm. Um, What is incredibly weird in this kind of analytics movement is that people don't recognize what happened and what will happen are, sorry, let me rephrase, what happened and what will happen are related. But there's a bunch of other stuff in the middle. And you you had a bunch of great, ex, you know, in, injury is huge. It was, it's hilarious. Um, I was talking to a friend of the show, Jeremy Britton, a big Warriors fan. And we're, we're, you know, one of the most interesting parts about the Warriors this season is their defense is really good. And then, funny thing happened Steph Curry went down injured, Draymond Green went down injured. They've kind of, sh- as a result, they've been forced to shake up their rotation in the last couple of games they haven't looked as good and then Draymond Green came back exactly at your Oh, he looked terrible like post injury that, that's not that's not Draymond Green that's not that's not Draymond Green this season he doesn't look good and so trying to to, to pull all those things together. Um, is it's fascinating and, and you know some stuff, as I mentioned, you know, looking at DFS things that you have to look at and are important. And we can definitely talk offline more about any of that. Although I was curious, sorry, to to flip this on you. One thing you were saying is you're not interested in betting, Mm -hmm. which is a fantastic take because I can can give you the, the insight of one of the issues with betting, right, is it makes it really, really hard to enjoy the game or even have nights to yourself anymore because we just talked about stuff that messes up your flow one of the interesting things I will say is, you know, I can have a podcast on in the background that I'll just drown out it when my mind gets going, or I can have TV on that I'll pause if I know you, it has to be something, if it's something it's, it's too hard to focus. But if there's a game on that I have any action on, even like March Madness, when that kind of stuff is on, because I did a bracket for the first time in forever, it's really hard to focus when that is going. And depending on other stuff, right, if you want to be a really sharp, better, you know, people that do first and second half DFS has what's known as late player swaps. So the way daily fantasy sports works is you select from a core of players, um, on a, using a salary cap and based on that core of players you've selected, um, if they do the best you win Uh, and there's, you know, all sorts of contests and they've unfortunately gamified it to the point that it's kind of like playing the lottery, which is a shame. Um, All of that's going on. Well, If you want to maximize your earning potential, both as a better and even in daily fantasy sports, one thing you can do is hedge, right? If I bet, let's say I'm a huge roller, right? Let's say I bet $5,000 on the Lakers to win. Well, let's say hypothetically, um, Anthony Davis gets injured in the first half. There are bets on the second half that you can take. There are things Mm -hmm. that you can know. And then of course, um, there are all sorts of points like this, right? If you do a weird parlay to say, I bet $1,000 at the beginning of the season about who's gonna win the finals. Well, come finals time, I can go just place a bet. If, if I've got a parlay to win $10,000 that I started at the start of the season, I can come in and just bet $5,000 almost 50-50, right? With marginal taken away for Vegas. You were mentioning, I don't know if, if it made the, the cut or we were talking pre-show about it, but you know, Vegas basically ideal world and you were saying so i don't want to take credit um because i believe it was before recording so i don't want to act mm-hmm. like i'm like i know all this about it i'm explaining it back to you but basically vegas is trying to take 50 percent on both sides and then they take a little bit out of the middle which is why if you notice on any of the bets right you'll see like minus 110 plus 110 they're essentially taking 10 percent off and in an ideal world the winner gets 90 percent the loser gets nothing and vegas gets 10 percent if everything works well obviously vegas can get hosed if inadvertently, I think what was that uh, Super Bowl that had so much action on one side and then they lost and Vegas, you know, took a bath on that. That kind of stuff can happen. Um and I, I completely but yeah, so with all the betting, exactly that, right? You're you're trying to you can do things both ways and, and take really sharp advantage of it. That's a lot of work. So staying out of it. But then even before so I hope I'm not giving anything away, you were saying even just the process of you know selling picks and keeping up to date on that, you were starting to feel iffy about as well.
0: Yeah, and you're exactly right about it affecting your enjoyment of the game. So I haven't watched a basketball game for, I started making picks and posting them on February 6th. I haven't watched a game for enjoyment since then. I've watched games for information and analysis, but not for enjoyment. So you're exactly right. And I've I've put, for lack of a better word, structures in place. So I'm I'm a big believer in, in meditation, and it's been a helpful tool for me in adulthood. And so one, when I wake up, there's always that little urge because I'm six hours ahead. So the games are played in the middle of the night. And when I wake up, the scores, you know, the games are just finishing up. So, there's that urge of check the scores, see if your picks won. And I sort of have a rule that I can't check the picks until after lunch. I can't check the results until after lunch. So, I get up, I meditate, I do my work. You know, on a good day, knock on wood, I get in flow state, I go for a walk or I go to the pool, I eat lunch, then I can check the picks. And as removed, and I, and I don't bet on, I don't make bets myself. Never, I've never, you know, gambled. I've never bet on sports, never done. I mean, used to have a, a home poker game, that was about it. But uh, to quote Danny Ainge, um, you know, Danny Ainge is a Mormon, so Mormons aren't allowed to, to gamble. And back in the days of the Celtics, the big three Celtics of the eighties, Ainge used to play with Bird and McHale and Parish, and so he used to play cards for money. And a reporter said, "Danny, I thought you couldn't gamble." He said, "I can't, but this isn't gambling. This is stealing," because he was just cleaning <laughs> up. So you know, I had a home poker game that was you know wasn't gambling really. It was uh, I had an advantage there, just because the guys were a lot, a lot more casual about it. Um, but other than that, I've never gambled. So it's a new world to me. It's taken away the enjoyment I have of watching the game. Um, and there's that urge when you wake up to check the scores. And as analytical and removed as I am from it, you know, if the picks hit, I feel a little bit better. Uh, if they don't hit, you know. And the, the point that I've made, if you actually, I need, I can't remember if I've sent you the, the, the newsletter with the picks, but early on, I, I sort of explained it as this is a mutual fund. And we want a long-term return on investment. And you wouldn't check the individual stocks that compose your mutual fund day by day to see what did Apple do yesterday? What did did Nike do yesterday? And then get upset or get happy because one little piece of your portfolio went up or down one day. So that's how I think about this. But there is that... Human component, where you start to you you start to get invested. So th- those are a couple reasons why I am a little ambivalent about it. At the same time, it's it's hitting the the picks or hitting at elite rates. I always say past performance, just like a mutual fund, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. But so far, it's um, it's doing well. And you were kind of mentioning, um, like I said,
1: again, pre-show that kind of COVID has thrown everything into kind of disarray. And I, ironically with yep. me, one reason you're seeing more stuff at the box for Geeks was a lot of that. I, I was uh, self-employed, um, was, was looking to get back in in industry and that, and that kind of ended up happening because of COVID and I got on more of a regular schedule and wasn't doing DFS on the side or anything. Mm-hmm because all of that really impacted how much I wanted to be coding basketball, how much focus I had during basketball game, all all of that kind of stuff. And you're kind of mentioning the same where kind of the reason, and and this is all in your book, right? So read the book if you haven't. Um, So in your book though, you kind of mentioned that that COVID had a a huge impact on on kind of falling into this because you kind of hit the tail end. So obviously the beginning of COVID, everything shuts down, including sports. And the tail end of COVID it sounds like you were in a position where beginning of covid work-wise was more stable tail end of covid starts getting weird and that's where it's going hey wait a minute um like you exact same point i made about about dave like this thing that was on the back of your head that comes to the forefront for some reason in my case it was because of um because we, we traded for Allen iverson and why the heck aren't we winning in your case you're basically saying i think you uh credited a a James james Alt- yeah it was uh what james alterker i hope i'm saying his name right Altich. i know we did a lot with also sure.
0: Thank you. It's weird.
1: it's one of those annoying ones where I've read so much of him. And I think I hear that two-minute snippet at the beginning of some of the free economics podcasts he's on, but okay. But you were saying that you would you had heard him, and, and that came, you know, those kind of coalesced together. And the question being like post-COVID, which you know, knock on wood fingers crossed, is is sooner, you know, we're hopefully we're closer to the end than the beginning at this point. The question what to do after get gets very interesting.
0: Yeah, and it's so I don't want to paint this as just um, a neutral experience. It's actually been great because it it has almost unlocked some creativity in my brain. And as I wrote in the book, I've worked for institutions my entire life, either for schools or universities or you know public schools is, is government run and um, university public university uh, and then private. High school and private institution here in Namibia, and it has been freeing, both creatively. I've done a ton of writing, um, and you asked sort of what, what the long-term plan with the book is. So, I've got two more books in the pipeline, um, and they'll they'll comprise a series of my journey into this different world. So, my journey into coaching professional basketball, and I'm using quotation marks because professional basketball in Namibia is barely professional, um, and then I directed an improv group, high school, um, made up of high school students, uh, a long form improv group, and, and both experiences were wonderful and, and life changing and transformative, so I got the first draft of both of those done, so after, you know, maybe two months from now, three months from now, hopefully there'll be a trilogy of three books all about my journey into this different world. So that all kicked off, this creative um, spurt all kicked off with starting this, this journey of making picks and writing about basketball and analysis and so forth, and, and then starting a podcast. And then you mentioned when we were off here about booking guests, you know, the process of booking guests. And sometimes one guest leads to the next guest, like Professor Barry led to you, and you and doing, getting back into video editing, which I hadn't done for years. So it's it's been great actually to do all these ancillary things, but the actual, this first project of making picks, offering them for a paid subscription on a newsletter, that part of it, I, I, the other part I'm ambivalent about is if you treat it like a mutual fund and you don't get high or don't get low on, on any given day, Again, past performance, future performance, but if, if future performance continues, it's gonna work out well. What I worry about, because people become addicted to gambling, and I think most sports bettors are probably addicted. What I worry about is, rather than someone just making the picks and betting 5% of their bankroll or 10% of their bankroll on any, any given day, if I give three picks on one day, somebody sees one pick and they're like, yeah, I like that Clippers pick that Ben suggested. And then my friend, Dre, he gave me a tip about the Clippers. And then I saw something on a chat room about this. And then, you know, so rather than just sticking with the program, they use one piece of information and they say, fuck it. And they bet half their month's rent or something on it. And even though I'm just a, a tangential part of that, I don't feel great about that. Now, I'm not sure if that's happening or not, but... Like I said, you know, ninety-seven percent of better sports betters lose money. And a big reason, big reason is Vegas. Vegas it's that high. Yeah, it's that high. 97% wow. of betters lose money. You'll see at the end of the book I go into it. 1% break even at 53%, and 2% do better than 53%. So I estimated elite would be five percentage points better than 53%. Because only two percent do better than 53%. So five percentage points better would be fifty-eight percent, and I think anything beyond fifty-eight percent, you know, you're talking about 0001 percent of of sports betters or and handicappers. So right now I'm at sixty-two percent. So that's, you know, that's five, that's, 10, that's almost ten percent better than the league. That's
1: I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on
0: this season? Seems really weird. The the the, the much Coleman more variance season. than usual.
1: Yeah, they're, they're, well, it's, and I mean, I, I could also buy something that you might have an edge that others do not is, you, we were talking, you know, all of these other factors that we don't do at the site. And it's almost, I loved how you brought it up because the way you brought it up, as you said, um, just so it's on there, you were like saying, hey, uh, is there any way I could pay you to get this extra information added? Because that would make wins produced even more useful. Mm-hmm. Great. The normal response we get on the site, as you're probably aware, some of the comments or things that we'll occasionally address on the podcast, is "Winds produced is bad because it doesn't do this." Kobe, Kobe, yeah. <laughs> Kobe. Oh my God! One of my favorite, one of my favorite lines from someone I don't like. There are very few people in this field I don't like, um, but one that I don't. Um, yeah, basically said in one of his articles, the numbers had to come around to prove Kobe was as good as we thought he was. Mm. And I just, my, my, and it's funny because I, as Kobe assist, the Kobe assist was, so actually I want to, I want to steal a moment to talk about, about that. And actually when we're talking about people that approach you in this field because i've been doing it since a little after i think 2010 is when i started and dave was doing i think 2006 on yeah. um which is when I, I,
0: I discovered it in 2006 like i've, I've been on board with this yeah. from day one
1: almost. Or yeah like you yeah and it's it's just one of those what, what i find fascinating that you said is I think uh, in the beginning of your book, the the, the inscription you give to him is some like the hiding in plain sight or something. Mm -hmm, And what makes Dave more fascinating to me is he's not hiding in plain sight, people know him. I bring up that when I go to conferences, I talk to him, he's known as outspoken. And what I would notice there's, I I don't know if you've read any of the Steve Jobs biographies, but Mm -hmm, a a term that was related to Steve Jobs was the reality distortion bubble. Mm -hmm. Is that when Steve walked around He would kind of want to distort reality he'd go and he'd say I want this and sometimes it was contrary to what he said the next day. And I've definitely noticed a bubble around sports teams and what I can kind of observe is when you have hobbyists like us. I got a lot of people mad using the term hobbyist but i'm going to stick with it when hobbyists like us come near a team bubble you notice the things they say start changing. And so what you just said, the Kobe Assist is work done by an analyst named Kurt Goldsberry, who kind of came to prominence by what I would call kind of what the the third or fourth iteration of something called expected points per shot. Mm -hmm. And something that people know is um, where you take a shot from on the court matters. And so some of the analytics people had started basically saying, you can now start using the newer data because there is shot chart data from 2001 on, I think it goes back to 1996 now, but you can use the shot chart data to look at the the selection of shots teams are taking, and then if you multiply that by league average, you can say, how good would they be shooting? And something we are aware of with the advent of ball is shot selection matters a great deal for the love of God, take three, stop taking long twos. and so that that was something that the analytics movement kind of caught on, what what Kurt Goldsberry did that no one else did that was very novel is he made these beautiful graphs for showing mm-hmm. how what different players looked like shooting from the the field. And, and you know, I would say at least in that regard, made a major major contribution to analytics and and moved the field forward. But then what happened is Kurt Goldsberry starts going to Sloan. He is an expert in basically geographic information, right? And in map data, which is something that strikes strikes close to home because that was my my first job. It was a GIS, uh, geographic information systems. He's an expert in that. Jeremy Britton and I wrote a great piece on it where if you look at Kurt Gold's very, very, very first piece, it's got all of these beautiful charts and very few words. I've got this beautiful data. Here's how to transform the data into something much easier to see. Data visualization 101, amazing. He starts going to Sloan. He starts becoming consultant for teams. He eventually ends up as a consultant for the uh, San Antonio Spurs, and then he comes out with the Kobe assist. And the Kobe assist was his attempt to rationalize why a player like Kobe, despite having bad efficiency at the, and you know he was going downhill. So I think in his prime, relative to the league, you could say Kobe was a good scorer, but by the end, when you know he was getting old and and enforcing it, he's terrible. He's and he was basically going. Kobe, Kobe's actually, you know, you, you think his missed shots are bad. All these analytics nerds are going to tell you these missed shots are bad. Um, But you know, those shots get rebounded. And so maybe they're good and was, was what, and, and you're, and, and, and you look at that article, that article has two charts and reams and reams of words. And that is, is what I would call the NBA team distortion bubble in a nutshell. When people want to work for NBA teams. What happens is they start talking to people in front offices, and they come and they say, "You really like easy examples, right?" I, I could go to the Utah Jazz and say, "Look, you are a great team." Now, here's the thing: I'm not even going to say Donovan Mitchell is a bad player. The numbers don't say that. They say he's
0: your, your Twitter. They say buddy. he's
1: go. He, he's, a, yeah, he's. I mean, it's funny because I, I've changed a lot in that regard. Exactly what you were saying about how you feel. A lot of my writing has been about how teams overpay for players. And it's very easy to start denigrating the players. What is Donovan Mitchell doing? And I flip my thinking along, going like, yes. "What do I care if a billionaire in Utah that's getting tax subsidies waste their money?"
0: Whereas, and, the- and you, you've made this point several times on your podcast, which um, Box Score Geeks everybody should subscribe to, and and the website. But you made the point that I want Donovan, Donovan Mitchell to get all the money because even as a multi millionaire he's still being exploited um, because he's, yeah. he you know, people are making billions off of his labor. Um, if you look at the valuation of, of the teams over the last five years, but it doesn't mean we can't also identify Donovan Mitchell as an overrated player in terms of productivity. We want him to get all the money, but he's also overrated.
1: Yeah. It's funny. The The pay is the thing that I don't, Care about the the things where I start getting upset is you know things like all star nods and awards or when fans of my work get upset, that's where it starts getting weird. But yeah, I, I've definitely taken a flip to going, you know, get your money players because when you were saying Dave Barry's work hidden in plain sight, what I'll say is like, thank goodness the players seem to be paying attention because front offices are not. And like I said with Kurt Goldsberry, the reality distortion is there are a lot of people that started blogging the world's changed a lot but when when the blogging was still a much bigger thing and there are all these people you know they they comment on wages of wins they'd have these things beautiful idea and then i would actually notice i would notice them turn and say oh well what about this or you don't think enough about this or what about spacing that's why i might want to talk to you because i, I like that i liked your episode on spacing the way you phrased it, and it's it's an interesting one. But you know, suddenly you notice when people start changing and adjusted plus minus, you know, does have some good stuff. Or hey, there is there is interesting stuff about defense you're not factoring in. Or what if missed shots are really good? When all of that starts happening, it's because they're getting close to a team. And there's a very funny thing, which is teams are run by a cartel of you know thirty billionaires, and you're essentially hoping one of them is gonna be your patron. And it's really, really hard to go up to someone, a billionaire that spent tens of millions. Now now it's getting into hundreds of millions, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars on the player. And you go up and you tell them, uh, look, uh, you're wrong. In fact, I actually, you, you caught me on a rare day where I actually released a post today on Score Geeks. And what I actually said is I said, the funny thing about the Golden State Warriors is they have a contending, they don't have to do anything. They didn't do anything at the trade deadline, but they don't have to do anything. They just have to play the right players. But telling them to play the right players means going up to them and say, you know how you're paying $30 million a year for Andrew Wiggins? You know how you uh, tanked last season and picked James Wiseman with the top three pick, top four pick. I forget what he went. Was it two? The number two, second, number three. Second, I think.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. You know how you pick James Wiseman with the second pick? Yeah. Look, here's what you do. Bench them both. Just, just don't play them for the rest of the season and, you know, play Steph Curry, Damian Lee, uh, I don't want to say his name because I'm gonna mess it up with a G League player, uh, amazing guy, guard forward, Draymond Green and Kevin Looney. Just play those guys and you're you're golden, yeah. and they're not gonna do that. And it, yeah. it it is it is. And so that's the thing is that the analysis I'm giving right there. If I start getting close to an NBA team, that's when you'll notice me saying stuff like, "Well, Wiggins' defense is really useful," and I've noticed that. And I start getting trepidatious when people approach me because I kind of go. At some point, you're going to want an NBA front office job. Doesn't mean you'll get it, but you're going to want it. And when you do is when you're going to turn, and then it's going to be,
0: be awkward between us. So, Dre, that's so interesting because I remember when I first started following you guys, and and this is going to tie into actually why well, I'm probably just going to put this podcast up and not cut any of this out. I started following you guys really early on. I'm sure um, Dave Barry you know, linked to you guys as soon as you guys started doing public stuff. And I remember thinking, and I wonder if you thought this too. I bet these guys are gonna be public for like a year, and then some team is gonna snap them up. And now at this point, you know, 10 years later, I'm just like, these teams are too fucking stupid to figure any of this out. And and you know, we can put this podcast up and no one's gonna give a shit. And you can you have your work public and 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 people don't get it. And I love the way you the, the analogy you used of Sloan as. The idea of um, the owners of teams as patrons in Sloan is essentially uh, a patron job fair, right? I'm I'm hoping to get hired by one of these patrons. I think that's a a deep insight you gave into why there's so much groupthink around all of this.
1: And, and, And that gets weird too, where there's a great Mike Birbiglia joke where he goes, I want a woman that loves me for my money and is really bad at math. And, it's it's, it's, <laughs> and he, it's, it's it's really good. And one of the funny things about working for an MBA team is unless you turn into a Daryl Morey, you're going to get underpaid for a lot. And I know I, I'm talking to an edge, you know, I'm talking to someone who went into academia and, you know, went into teaching and, and, you know, I mean, obviously you did a lot of your career is for love of what you do. It has to be because it's like one of the most well-known secrets, right, when you're, when you're in grad school, when I just did a master's degree, like you mentioned, you got PhD. It's just like a running joke when you're getting your, your upper degrees. It's like, you're just wasting time. You could be making money and you, you're doing this for some other reason, which is fine. The NBA is a lot like that. These, the people that go after these jobs do not get commensurate value for what they could be getting right. if they had those skills on the open market. And then we start getting weird. When, when you're saying weird stuff, what I'll, what I'll throw out there too, by the way, is, is we're talking sports betting. Someone you might want to reach out to, uh, American Numbers, Arturo Galetti, uh, one yeah, of the old. Follow kids. him on,
0: on Twitter. He'd be great to have on.
1: He's he's a great one, and I mean, for what it's worth, this this is where it gets interesting. You want to debate this on. He he is the CTO for Sports Grid, and they do you know, and that was part of Daily Roto, and they do picks, they do numbers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's the same field right and so you know it's funny you're like it's competitor or whatever you know or or if that's something you want to pursue there, there's that there but it's like a lot of the people when you're like why didn't a team hire these people it's because a lot of us recognized our value and even like if you notice the case of arturo and i mentioned some daily fantasy sports it's like you're able to make money on this without being in it you're making you're making money uh spelling sports picks if you were more adventurous. And I, I applaud and respect and also say, keep with it because the betting world is weird and all sorts of stuff. And I think it does mess with your heads when you were talking about how a lot of sports bettors are also like gambling addicts. That was one of the weird things I noticed in the brief time I, I touched DFS is the number of people, like you're saying, with Danny Ainge quote, this isn't, this isn't betting. This, yeah. is this is skill. Statistical analysis, but the number of people that are like, oh, want to go out to the golf course and uh, bet, you know, fifty dollars a hole, or hey, we're all going to go out to lunch. Uh, there's something called like credit card roulette. Do you want to all throw your credit cards in a pile, and we, you know, we have the waitress pick one out. and Whoever yeah. they pick, they pay for lunch. That kind of stuff. It, it was, you know, it was shockingly common when I would look at it's the action know, at, at people that play it, you know. And so yeah, it's it's a kind of a funny thing where it's like, yeah, you can make a thousand dollars being very prudent making smart bets. There's a good chance that they've lost it that night betting something stupid, like if they'd beat a friend at, you know, pop shot or whatever. So the, how to make money off of gambling while not being in it is, is a thing that I also noticed, like I mentioned, is doing picks. So he, he was very successful at daily fantasy sports and then went on and is basically doing analytics, which makes a lot of sense. A lot of the people that get jobs with teams, it's because that exact point, either they are I don't want to say delusional in a bad way. I don't don't want to come off as denigrating, but basically going, you are not going to make money until you get to the assistant GM level or higher. Mm. So that's a lot of years going far below your wages with a very small chance of success. You just have to be aware. Now, the irony is that's, that's sports in general, right? That's, if you want to become a professional basketball player, you can be the best player at your high school. And I can still look you in the eye and say, get your damn degree you're not going to statistically you are not going to ever make money playing basketball. You can become the 99.9% best player in the world and you'll be bouncing around the G League making less money than you'd be making if you got an accounting degree. So there you know th- there's that delusion or there's you can make money elsewhere for more and a lot of people did that a lot and you know it was like Dave Barry myself Patrick it's like all of us have these skills people are willing to pay it and it's like none of us want to go to a team and give good analysis and get told ah never mind uh we're it's kind do, of funny do, do, do we you t- want to work for Tito? what no so, absolutely do- not and, exactly, right? <laughs> i mean i'll take the money if, 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 if that's the thing is the only way i would work for a team yeah. would be as if i got offered a big chunk of change and there was a sloan arturo and i went to back in the day and the Raptors who had kind of gotten this beautiful piece on them that was 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 praising their analytics squad they got written up on and we were watching a talk by the front office and the person was kind of giving like high level budgets for an analytics squad and Arturo and I looked at each other and was like that's half to a third of and and by the way first time it was small because it was like two or three people in some servers is what they said and I think at the time they said like a budget of like two to three hundred thousand so basically, saying hiring two full-on analytics software engineer people with the software and hardware to do everything they needed—they were like, "Oh, you could." And and I think that's in Boston or Toronto would be better. But you know, if you're talking in Boston or whatever, it's like, like two to three hundred thousand dollars for that department, and it's like you are looking like no, that you you couldn't you couldn't buy that on the open market now. So there's just something very funny, which is like, I would gladly work for a team if they paid me for it. But I know what would happen is most teams when they hire people are like, we will give you half of industry value and the way we're able to string you along is with the hopes that you'll become assistant GM, but that's an incredibly rare feat to do. And oftentimes the people we see succeed, like Daryl Morey, even like Sam Hinkie, you know, I mean, he flamed out eventually. I would argue through no fault of his own. That was kind of that was kind of a bummer that the NBA just said, no, you're not allowed here. And mm-hmm. I think I think if he'd had his brothers, the 76ers would have kept him. And with how lucky he got with Ben Simmons, that was luck, I would have to be sitting here still arguing years later about if he was right. I still think he was wrong. I still stand on that island alone, but I don't fault him. But yeah, like even those people, they had different skills that let him advance the ladder. So it's like, you can't get into the NBA with analytics and advance with just analytics, but a lot of people try.
0: Yeah, I mean, back to the idea of, of exploitation, right? I mean, these are billionaires who who probably inherited money from, from um, family wealth that was probably built on the on the backs of exploitation. I mean, Fertitta is a good example, I think. I think all his money's from the restaurant industry and the casino industry. I think it's family money. And I think a lot of owners, I don't even like that term, right? Cause you yeah, know, it's weird, all, almost all white men and you're talking about almost or majority black players. So let's say um, governors, team governors, <laughs> they all, which I think is the, the actual term, right? Um, they all, uh, not all of them, but I, I think what happens is you get somebody who's got some money, who's got some downtime. If we take Tillman Fertitta, lives in Houston, wants you know wants some shine, wants some publicity, wants to look good you know for whoever, and buys a team, and then just gets hammered in the press left and right for anything and everything, and then even if they're somebody who's smart, and I don't think Fertitta's um, smart. I mean, he's a Trump supporter, so that tells you right there. Um, they, they can't play the long game. That's what happened with Hinkey. The, the, the team hired him. They knew, they knew. I mean, Hinkey did a detailed presentation explaining exactly the process. The team, the, the governors were on board, and then after three years of bad press, they just couldn't take it anymore, even though they were right on the cusp of the of, of championship. Well, do you, do you buy do you buy in with basically the
1: NBA saying he
0: has to go? Because, well,
1: the, you know, the the, clan... the
0: reporting was the NBA definitely um, put pressure on, I forget the, Josh Harris, I think is the, the majority team governor of the 76ers, put pressure on Harris to hire Jerry Colangelo to to advise Hinky. Um, and Jerry Colangelo's an old basketball hand, um, and so then Col- Jerry Colangelo hires his son Brian Colangelo, and Henke has said that's when he saw the writing on the wall. Um, so it, I don't think the NBA was like you need to get rid of Henke, but it was it was we don't want bad publicity. Plenty of teams tank, plenty of teams have tanked for you. The Clippers under Donald Sterling were awful, and you know that was that wasn't intentional. Uh, I was just an awful team governor with, with, you know, all the problems associated with that. So I don't think the NBA said get rid of Hinky, but I think they said, we don't want that publicity. And Henke started doing publicity right before he left. And he had made the the, the correct point early on that, why would I do any publicity? All I'm doing is giving away information. Why would I do that? It doesn't make sense. And he's right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think at one point I noticed that, that at least kind of this is mean pre Kurt Goldsberry era, the Spurs were a real money ball team, but the difference is yes, when people said,
0: before talk, talk to the people, yeah. Andre.
1: Yes. Yeah. So, so the, the key is the Spurs, no doubt, right? There are two players in Spurs history, David Robinson and Tim Duncan, monumentally lucky to get, both of those players. Right. And that, that comes down to luck and Tim Duncan, I believe part of that when we're talking weird statistical odds is I believe it was the Vancouver Grizzlies were an expansion team and they're one of the worst teams in the NBA, but because they were an expansion team, they weren't eligible. So that briefly, yeah, they, they couldn't get the number one pick. So as a result, the Spurs odds were a little better than they would have been in a normal year. And Denver was really terrible that year, so there, there's a world in which Denver pulls a Dikembe Mutombo with Tim Duncan, for those who don't remember. Dikembe Mutombo was an amazing player for the Denver Nuggets, and then he asked for a big extension, and we said no, and you know, he actually helped out a number of teams. Like I, he, he made a finals, I really wish he would have gotten a title,
0: but is what it and, is. And I, and I point this out in the book, it was Dikembe Mutombo who was the most productive player on the Sixers team that went to the finals not Allen Iverson. And after Matumbo, yeah. it was George Lynch, not Allen Iverson.
1: It, it drove me, there was a, an article that uh, Justin Kupatko over formerly a basketball reference made when Dikembe Matumbo was going up for the hall of fame. And it drove me batty because he was saying, well, well, does he belong in the hall on some weird criteria? he was like, well, was he the best player on a contending team? And he's like, I don't know. And his metric, by the way, the one he made that was based on Dean Oliver's work was win shares. And the numbers back this up. If you go look at wind shares for that year, so not even wins produced. Wind shares has its own set of flaws. That that's got to be another podcast because it'll take us way too long. I know we're already over on time, but I'm I'm happy to talk as, as long as you got it. I'm really long. enjoying this
0: conversation. So as long as you want to go, let's let's
1: keep talking. Oh, awesome. Okay, just yeah. want to make sure I got that check in. But the, the the key part about that is even wind shares says Dikembe Mutombo per minute was a better player that season than Allen Iverson. Mm-hmm. So by like it was it was bizarre to read this article that said, was De Kimmy ever the best player in a contending squad? As he says, no. And I was like, Well, they <laughs> went to the finals. <laughs> went to the finals one year, and Dikemi Matumbo was the best player in that squad. They upset the number one seed one year and took the took the the um the Utah Jazz to seven, seven games. Seven games. Yeah. The same year, and he was the best player. So I was like, how can you write a sentence? Was he ever the best player on a contending squad? No, when, when all that happened, I, Dikembe Mutombo. I'm so glad he got first ballot. As as I'm sure you know, the big name for me right now is Ben Wallace. Ben Wallace. it is it is, it is atrocious that he is not in the Hall of. It, it's 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 it's. I, Oh, that, that that would take us even, longer. there are a couple of sticking points that'll have to be another one. I've written reams on that, but sorry, back to the Spurs. So the Spurs, yeah. of course, they luck into David Robinson and Tim Duncan, no disputing that. But the stuff they do is, as an example, picking players like Danny Green off the discard pile. For people talking about how Andre Drummond this season and, you know, why would anybody want him? The Cleveland Cavaliers let him go for nothing they did the same thing with Danny Green. And Danny Green went to the, the Spurs, they did well. Obviously finding um, Manu Ginobi with the very, very last pick in the draft. Uh, you know, they they always did really good with drafting, with with signing cheap free agents, all that kind of stuff. And they were really money balling the NBA, but the difference between them and the Oakland A's is first off, they won titles. So I think I think there was probably some pride of other NBA teams. You don't want to say, with the Oakland Athletics, you could always fall back on, they never, they, they don't win though. They're, they're like, oh oh yeah, sure. That, that's a good way to win in the regular season. But that, that kind of style doesn't win in the postseason. Now that's just luck. I mean, that's baseball exactly. is just a very arbitrary game, but it is what it is. In basketball though, because the Spurs won, you know, five titles, if you say, oh, we got outplayed, there's probably a little bit of, you know, egg on face that other teams that want to have. So you're fine saying, oh, they, 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 it's their star. They tanked, they tanked for those players. Um, and so, but you can look at other teams like the Orlando magic had the same kind of fate with Dwight Howard, Shaquille O'Neal, Penny Hardaway, nowhere near the same success. So, but they didn't have any inkling to just give away their information for free. So that's another funny, what, what exactly what you're saying about Hinky. it is a well-known point that, just because someone has a microphone in front of your face does not mean you have to tell the truth and in fact in a game Dang. where you're trying to trade for players overvalue player value etc it behooves you not to give that information away and in fact it's incredibly stupid when you see one of my favorites of all time was Vlad Adbots came out was like oh yeah we had better deals for uh DeMarcus Cousins but we got and you're like
0: you're like you're a general manager what are you what are you doing but is what it is. Well, and you've, going back to the Spurs for a second, you've made this point, or you and Brian have made this point on your podcast, again, Box Score Geeks, which is the Spurs had a sort of natural governor, um, like a governor on a golf court, golf court, not that I ever play golf, but that there was something with their salary cap situation that they sort of had to money ball the league because they couldn't spend as much as other teams. Is that ringing a bell?
1: Oh, so this is, there's a great 30 for 30 on it. Uh, It's uh, about the Spirits of St. Louis was a defunct ABA basketball franchise. League with the NBA. By the way, in terms of things that get me riled, criminally underappreciated in basketball history. The ABA had some of the best players. A lot of the stuff, the modern box score, a lot of the stuff that we, the the three-point shot A lot of the stuff we associate with the modern NBA came from the ABA. And it took years and years for many of these players to get in the Hall of Fame. They're not recognized as much. Uh, Absolutely drives me batty. But so the ABA folds. And when the ABA folds four teams, the Indiana Pacers, San Antonio Spurs, at the time New York, turned into New Jersey, now back to Brooklyn, Nets, and Denver Nuggets all came into the, the NBA. There was a team in St. Louis, the spirits of St. Louis that was basically told, we don't want you to come in the NBA. And what, what they were offered is they were offered um, a seventh of the television revenue from those four teams that came in. And I believe I've, I've read up on Wikipedia that sums up to roughly 2% of the, the television res- revenue of the NBA. So they came into that. And so what that actually meant is until the mid, the like early 2010s, That was going on in perpetuity. One of the funniest stories is in the mid 80s, they were basically asked, they were said, we'll give you $5 million to give us back the TV rights. And they said, actually, we want eight. And so I think they said, I think they, actually, I think it was 5 million over eight years was what they asked for. So I forget what the initial offers, but they said, give us $5 million over eight years and you can have your TV rights back. And they balked, they balked at it at the time. And they kept it in perpetuity. And they eventually paid him out half a billion dollars after they had made over a quarter billion dollars on those television rights. So that happened. But that meant the four ABA teams, the Nets, the Nuggets, the Spurs, and the Pacers were all giving away some of their revenue. So when you talk about these owners that are trying not to lose money, the Spurs were even worse. And I mean, the the, the, the Nets, the advantage they've at least had is they're in a good market, and especially now with Brooklyn but the Pacers, uh, Nuggets, and Spurs were all on horrible markets, so I argue the Spurs had to kind of try and make these intelligent moves, and then what happened is they get their money back, there was a buyout, and as soon as they get their money back, they like hire Kurt Goldsberry, they sign LaMarcus Aldridge, they try and play normal strategy, and we can see it's taken them years, and they might get back to the playoffs now, which is good with some of their decisions they've made, but it's worth noting, for instance, that that involved just letting LaMarcus Aldridge walk, so.
0: Right. Did you see the the video of Stephen A. Smith the other day just ranting about the Nets signing Lamarcus Aldridge and it's not fair and they're buying the championship? It's like, hey, he's 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 underwater. He actually hurts the team.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite points, uh another famous better, uh Bob Bulgaris, um mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think he works for the, I, he, as the far Mavericks. as I know, he still works for, for the Mavericks. Yeah. I got yeah. hired by the Mavericks. I think he's still there, but he was on a true podcast and he kind of said something that would make him bristle is whenever a player was introduced as like all-star, if they were still in the NBA and they were introduced as all-star, whatever, but they hadn't been an all-star in five years. Right. And it's like the same thing. It's like, you're not going to sign Shaq and Kobe back when they were you know, both alive and at least close to NBA age. It's like, because we signed Shaq and Kobe in 2016, 2015, that you're just going to say, oh, oh great. We're going to win. We get, we got, we got two former finals. Yeah. Yeah, And so Blake Griffin and, uh, and um, Marcus Aldridge for the Nets right now. That's just one that I'm, I'm laughing so much because what they did, they did good before that. Who did they pick up before that? It was a good pickup. So at least shooter, one player. I thought they, they, I thought they were Joe going for Drummond. Somebody. They went. They went two people. They got one player that looked decent. I thought they were going to get Drummond, which had been good, uh, but of course Drummond has has now signed with the Lakers. So it's I could signing. have sworn they got one other player, and I, I might I might look it up. But yeah, uh, Aldridge, Aldridge and Griffin could potentially cost them a title,
0: which would be kind of hilarious. Back, which goes back to the beginning of the conversation, right? Inefficiencies. So the. Even people, the so-called experts, even probably some analytic, analytics lytic, experts—I don't know how to say that word even some analytics experts probably think that the Griffin and Aldridge signings or trades, or whatever it was, really help the Nets. So there's, and probably Vegas might as well. I, you know, I guess Vegas is smart, but but I don't know that they're as smart as everybody thinks they are. Um, and again, there's an inefficiency in that they just want equal betting on both sides. They don't necessarily want this team to win. They just want both teams to be equal in terms of the amount of money that's bet on that team. And they just take the 10%. They're like, Vegas is like the two green spots on the roulette wheel, right? They don't give a shit who wins as long as they get that green, green, um, VIG. So that's an exploitable inefficiency as far as wins produce and as Far as potentially offering picks is concerned, because people think Brooklyn is now better when actually they're worse.
1: And I was gonna say something that is just weird uh, when we talk about exploitable stuff, what it really seems to come down to is social capital. It really seems to come down to people not wanting to look silly, and that's yes. where you can exploit
0: a lot of stuff. Yeah, and, and it's, Ray, there, there, there's I don't know if you got to it, in, in the midpoint of, the, of my book, which I just published today, so I have a chapter where I talk about the Iverson trade, and P and Hollinger and PER, and I say you got it totally wrong. And I say at the same time there was this other metric and this other guy who got it totally right to the game as far as predicting the outcome of the Sixers' final record. And then and I added this at the last minute. So then I, in the original draft the next chapter is and his name's Dave Barry and the metrics wins produced. And just two days ago, or yesterday, I added a middle chapter right before I published it in between those two, and it's called Rabbit Hole. And I said, you might want to stop right now because the information I'm about to give you is going to get you laughed out of every NBA Facebook chat group, every barroom discussion, every respectable NBA circle, if you say George Lynch, and I use this I don't think I used the example. but if, if you say George Lynch was more important to the 2001 Sixers than Allen Iverson, literally 99.9, you know, it's just me, you, Brian, Arturo, and Dave, who are like, yeah, that's right. And everybody else is like, are you fucking crazy? Get the fuck out of here. And I'm like, you might not, you might be perfectly happy in your NBA, chat group you might not want to know this information so i literally added i call it rabbit hole i said this rabbit hole goes deep you might want to stop right now
1: well the good the good news on that by the way ironically is that's so far in the past it's amazing how how much of this stuff is just disappearing right it's like turning into drinking age right the uh the 2001 Colorado Avalanche, uh, one of the greatest squads ever constructed, the best ever. I want to believe that was just a couple of years ago, and that's almost 21 years now. Mm. And so the good news is, if you come up and say, George Lynch was better than Allen Iverson, <laughs>
0: you really <laughs> who
1: who are you talking about? But I mean, as an example, th- this has already been an argument um, forever that we've been on that you're aware of, which is Rudy Gobert versus Donovan yes. Mitchell. We're like, Rudy Gobert is the driver behind the Jazz. The goodish news is Donovan, good good, good job, Donovan Mitchell, he's above average this season, so fantastic. And I think, but I mean, basically he was an average rookie, not a good NBA player sophomore year, I would say kind of bench player junior year, and he's above average this year. So good job. But if you want to get yelled at, you go up and you say, Joe Ingalls is better, you know, know the Utah Jazz that are top of the West right now, that have that all-star Donovan Mitchell, Royce O'Neal, Joe Ingles, Mike Conley, Derek Favors are all more productive to the success. Go and say that uh, I'm not going to give the, the other ones don't have enough minutes. There are a couple other players that you know are above them in per minute, but they're they're low. But yeah, you go up and just say yeah. Joe Ingles has meant more to the Utah Jazz success than Donovan Mitchell, and I'll let this pivot to one thing. I don't know how much time we have to get down some of the political stuff. You know I love it because it's on our show. You talked to Jonathan Weiler. And I would just phrase that something that is interesting in what you just said on the rabbit hole is, I live in Wisconsin, I live in the Midwest. You were really curious about that, being a person of color in the Midwest during the Trump era. And what is fascinating about that is, out here, you know, you have the expected politeness, and everybody's nice, and it is a really, really disconcerting thing to interact with people that I know voted against my interests. That you know, I there's like a forty percent ch- chance in my area at minimum that they they voted Trump right, and there are certain people you just kind of know. Jonathan Weiler's book Prius or Pickup is a great read, where that you know people have tells where they they start going, oh yeah, I'm gonna go take my pickup truck, and I'm gonna. Go hunting, and I'm going to do these other shit. Things, you know, yeah, I'm going to send my kid to do this activity, and you go, oh, okay. You know, they're like, oh, I get, I get what's going on, Um, but they'll be nice and friendly, as whereas I've gotten in the Twitter equivalent of like shouting matches with people about Donna Mitchell. That rabbit hole argument is a really good warning, and this is with people that from the Prius or pickup standpoint would be in the same quadrant, whatever, whatever terminology you use for political leanings, right? Probably their ballot looks identical to me. You know, probably if we never talk basketball, we get along, but these weird things just get you. And, and it's so, so hard to divorce people from it. And there are lots of funny reasons, but but you are absolutely right on that. Like people just don't, and, it, and it's, I think the hard part is, I don't know why, I, st- I still don't understand why if you're a billionaire with all the money, it's that hard to go forward and I think the best metaphor, and I've used this on the box Square geek show before, was tall Paul De Podesto, um, who who was, you know, the second, the right hand man underneath Billy Bean and did go on to become a general manager himself, said, you know, you have the, the it's like kids at an amusement park going on a really big roller coaster. And they tell you, Daddy, Daddy, take me on that big roller coaster. I want to go on the big roller coaster. You you wait in line for an hour, you get to the front of the line, they look and they go, I don't want to go. And then you have to, you know, walk down the stairs. That's so much what analytics and I, and I don't there, I understand reasons why it happens, but I'm still, still confused. It's, it's still kind of amusing.
0: Yeah, towards the, you're exactly right. Um, I have a good friend who we just see so much, we see, we think alike and see things alike so much that our conversations are often hundred percent agree. And she says hundred percent agree, you know, we just go, that's hundred percent agreed, right? And um, Dave, in his, in the interview that I did with him the other day, towards the end, he said something to the effect of, you know, most, uh, he said something like, I'm a, I'm a heretic in the, in the e- economics world because I don't think people are rational. And most economists work from a presumption that people are rational. And we have a million years of human history to, to, to show otherwise.
1: The, the metaphor that has worked really well that I've seen used and, and it applies to me is glasses. I'm wearing glasses right now. My eyes don't work perfectly. You know, obviously there's LASIK or whatever, but my eyes aren't bad enough that I would want to do that. And I'm fine with glasses. I can know my eyes don't work. I can know the exact reason, right? That's what a prescription is. Because they run a machine and they say, here, your, your eyes are essentially these complicated lenses with, uh, you know, essentially a wire going into your brain. It's fun to think about it, uh, kind of engineer wise. Mm-hmm and they go it's got a flaw it's got a defect here is the defect they can tell me that and i can know it 100% me knowing that does not make my eyes work i have to wear glasses and if i ever take off my glasses you know i can't pass you know a driving test very close by the way so i'm like 20 40 but you know i still couldn't do that and to your you know the not rational that is the hardest thing to tell people is to go look at you are a machine you are a very impressive machine built over thousands of years of evolution and now we're essentially cyborgs because we have these amazing computers that can teach us and all this but you are still flawed and you have flaws that i know it's and it's um it's interesting because you say you did you did you do teaching and did teaching right that's awesome very i love the metacognition right you, you you've you learned about how to learn
0: which is yes. amazing that that, that, and then that that's my number one skill actually that's how i think about it that's that that's if i have a superpower it's knowing how people learn and how I learn.
1: I've got a, I've got a slight tangent at the end that I'll try and get down to see at the end, but I'll, I'll wait till the end, I'll finish this point first. But then what I was gonna say is, in, in school I studied computer vision and one of the funny things mm-hmm. about computer vision is they studied the human vision system because we had engineers spend years and years and years trying to build a vision system from the ground up with not a lot of success and said, hey, we have this, working vision system. And when you learn about human vision, you learn all sorts of flaws, right? We can only keep a certain amount of stuff in memory. So your, your brain does all sorts of hacks. Uh, if there's like a blinking dot in the purview of your vision, you, you will eventually, if it blinks reliably, you will eventually tune it out because your brain goes. Mm -hmm. And that's why people that get in, like, that's why so many accidents happen near your house because your brain is willing to cheat. It's going, I know this street, I know it's not that busy. So if you don't pay extra close attention, if you're a little tired, if you didn't have your morning coffee, I'm gonna cheat and just draw things the way you're used to it, all this. So learning about the human vision system was huge in learning about flaws in what we are capable of doing. And that's the analytic, and it still just gets remarkable, right? Every couple of years, a book like Thinking Fast and Slow, or of course, um, Malcolm Gladwell, all of these books about metacognition get really, really popular and everybody reads them and everybody talks about them. And then at the end of it, they come out and you're like, so do you think that you you possibly have flaws in your perception of the NBA? And it's like, oh no, no, I know what I'm doing. So it's, it's kind of amusing.
0: Yeah, I, again, 100% agree. There's a, there's a song lyric. I can't remember what song or who the singer is, but it's something like the man who knows something knows that he knows nothing at all. And and I constantly repeat something similar in in the newsletter about, you know, know what you don't know. So even yesterday in yesterday's newsletter for the picks, I I didn't give any picks. I said, I know what I don't know. I don't know, I don't have any advantage in any of these games, so no picks. And I'm sure, again, going back to this concern of this, I thought that people are addicted. I'm sure some people are like, well, I want the picks. And Maybe if I didn't offer any picks, they went somewhere else and got the picks. Um, because, to your point, you know, pop shot, credit card roulette—they want the action. They want the, the there's there's an emotional spike that comes from wagering. Um, so yeah, I, like I think I think this conversation can go any any number of directions. What what, what do you want to talk about next, Greg?
1: I was going to say I'm I'm definitely fine winding down because this was long, and I'm sure we'll yeah. talk more, which is which is great. Um, what was I, I want to give some feedback on that because from, from the daily fantasy sports perspective,
0: oh, there are definitely I had, a question days... about, I had a question about that actually. Oh um, sure,
1: yeah. Why don't you ask the daily fantasy? We'll, we'll see where that takes us and then I'll, I'll ask my tangent at the end and that can be the show. Yeah. And sorry to try and try and trying to host you on your own podcast. Sorry to, no. but okay. So so go oh. go for the daily fantasy sports question. Joe,
0: you know, it's just a quick question. Is daily fantasy sports like fantasy football, or is this something where you're making where you're betting money.
1: It, it is it is money based and it is all sports. And it, it in fact got silly um, because you can do daily fantasy uh, NASCAR driving, you can da- daily fantasy mm-hmm. tennis, you can do daily fantasy golf. The way it came about, this is really interesting because you're you're seeing the culmination of the sports betting world, which is it didn't used to be legal in the United States. So what these companies did is essentially, we really want to be honest about what it was. It was a complicated parlay system to allow people to bet on games without directly betting I on games. And it was done so with there was a, there was, a, the law in the there was a, yeah yeah there was a law passed called the professional amateur and sports protection act i actually got the acronym right i think we mentioned uh steven's point the the presentations there and i messed that up in my talk i forgot the acronym but so that bill was passed to basically outlaw Uh, sports wagering in the United States. There was a provision put in there to basically say games of skill and essentially labeled fantasy sports. So we're thinking season-long baseball and football leagues, that's what we are all familiar with, were allowed. And so it turned out that you were allowed to bet on fantasy sports as long as it wasn't controlled by one team, right? You're, You're not betting the outcome of team A versus team B. And so then what you were able to do is in theory, what you could do is right. You could say I'm gonna bet, I'm gonna bet that my fantasy squad of the Denver Nuggets starting five is going to be your starting squad, the Houston Rockets. And Denver's playing Houston, right? You're essentially baiting Denver versus Houston. So they changed it enough so you couldn't just do that. But doing exactly that, stacking players from the same game, is a very common strategy, and it's for money. And one of the frustrating parts when you kind of talk the gambling addict route is they they sold it as a game of skill which it is the the numbers and they did lots of studies to prove it because they had to because what happened is they come came under lots of legal scrutiny they did lots of lobbying to keep daily fantasy sports legal and then when those lobbyists were done with daily fantasy sports they had all of the connections all of the information they went and started lobbying to make fantasy betting or not fantasy sports betting legal and shocker the daily fantasy sports companies, DraftKings and Fandor the two, I know you've heard those names, they're everywhere. They had their own sports books ready to go. So essentially it was a sideways to get into sports gambling that then because of the, there was a big uh, controversy a couple of years back, it's called Ethan Gate, it's a, fun, it's a fun rabbit hole to get down. They came under a lot of legal scrutiny they worked really hard to get legislation passed. And then because they had done that, they were in the position to start getting to start getting sports gambling passed. And now the United States is slowly turning, uh, turning into that direction. But to your point about like gambling, when they started, they sold it as this is a game of skill s- statistics-based, right? If you know, um, and, and they did all sorts of studies on that. But then what they started doing to their contests is they they started making them more lottery-based, top-heavy first place gets most of the money. Uh, Even if you, even the funny thing with your Vegas picks, right? You're saying, right, you wanna beat the spread 53% of the time. Well, what daily fantasy sports has started doing is, oh, you can win if you win 53% of the time, but you know, if you're at that margin, you don't win a dollar, you win 90 cents, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So they've kind of gone down that route, but where it gets fascinating is if gambling, just straight up sports gambling is legal, And if the numbers stay there, because that's another part. When you're saying 53%, that might sound counterintuitive to people that aren't in the know. And the reason it's 53% is just that, because Vegas is going to take some of the money off the top. You don't win. If you put a dollar in and you're right, you don't get a dollar out. You get usually 90 cents. 90 cents, yeah.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, Was there another tangent you wanted to come back to? Oh, yeah.
1: So on the daily fantasy sports and just your betting, one of the fascinating bits of advice I would give in your picks. I, I'm actually very happy to hear that is the leave it alone because in daily fantasy sports, there might be nights where the obvious, what, what, what could potentially happen is a couple starters get injured on a short slate. So let's say there's only four games going. Let's say James Harden gets injured and LeBron James gets injured. And those were the only two stars playing. Well, if you're in a salary cap league, and the two stars are out, then essentially you are left with enough money to buy all the good players and the good play, as we've just noted about basketball, the good news is the good players tend to be obvious. So there are definitely nights in both daily fantasy sports and gambling where very war games, the only correct move is not to play because everybody knows what you know. The it's, it's very obvious. And in fact, that's a good test of yourself if you are doing this as a profession for gambling or doing it as a high because if a night comes along and your your picks come out and they say hey hey, look the only really smart pick tonight is uh warriors versus the bulls or warriors versus it's weird that the knicks are playoff team i'm not used to that uh but yeah i'll stick with the bulls warriors versus the bulls or not warriors right jazz versus the bulls and honest honestly the, the action's not great, the line's not set super great, you can bet $100 to win five, maybe take tonight off. There aren't good parlays, there aren't good other things right. That's a really good thing to do. And in fact, tying it back to like the base analytics of like running a front office, a lot of times not making a move if there aren't any good moves is what teams should do. And you find that it's, it's really hard for humans as betters, as front office people, whatever, to, to do that.
0: Yeah. And I think you've made the point, you or Brian have made the point at some point that teams should just, because you can buy second round picks, you can buy low first round picks, but second round picks have even more value. Teams should just buy 10 second round picks, draft 10 players that, that, that do well on WP48 in college, throw them all in the G League. And then move up the ones that continue to produce at a at a high rate, and now you have a second round player that's a productive player on a on a um, advantageous contract.
1: That's interesting too. What what you just said, because I think one of the hard parts that people leave out about the draft. James Wiseman is a perfect example. Is young players oftentimes are not good. So some easy, easy, low hanging fruit to throw to people if you want to get branded a heretic again, as you're mentioning. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, uh, Sabonis now is is up there, mm-hmm. um, and possibly James Wiseman. All of these players were not good rookie players. And the reason those first three are key, right, is they went on to be, Sabonis is looking awesome. Um, LeBron James became LeBron James. Of course, he was a high scorer, which is kind of atypical. Kevin Durant was the best looking player out of college. Um, I think he still retains that um, for like most Mm -hmm. recent. It's like one of the best looking college prospects. He was terrible his rookie season. Um, I know we weren't rookie of the year. He didn't deserve it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really hard to know what young players are going to do. So, but if you get players on the cusp, right, if you use your second round picks for players that should be in the NBA, That are passed on the most the most prominent example my favorite ben wallace and those players are going to be so happy you gave them a shot and then if you get them on a g league team and get them doing the right stuff there's uh we bring up the book moneyball all the time and there are things people miss about that book and one of the most important aspects is in baseball you have minor league teams and Mm. in in the Oakland A's, their minor league farm system, they basically said, if you are one of our prospects, if you can't take walks in our minor league system, we're never going to call you up. So basically, before they ever called anybody into the majors, they made sure they understood stood their system, their you know their, their way of doing things. Whereas in the NBA, right, you get a star rookie, you get a Donovan Mitchell, and they're chucking it. And you and if you say, hey, look, you 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 keep chucking it, we're benching you. He says. I'm gonna complain and you're gonna end up trading me and i'm gonna chuck somewhere else if you won't let me and and i think teams intrinsically know that so you know just things that people people don't learn is very fascinating so that that g-league one i really like because it's so tempting to go to the top of the draft and hope you find the next star and that is so much harder than people give it credit for including like the social cost of we drafted the star. They don't look great. What do we do now? Do we, do we bench them and tell them to get better? Do we trade them away? You know, there are only a couple like Darko is one of the few examples of a mistake made in the top three that teams gave up on and the Detroit Pistons gave up on Darko, but the NBA didn't. I mean, he, he ended the career on his terms. Like he didn't, Mm. he left when he wanted to leave. There were teams still willing to give money. People forget that. Same was true of Sam Bowie uh, who I think it's really unfair that he's labeled a draft bust. He just got injured. He was a really, really good rookie. And he just got injured and injuries happen. uh the lakers offered him a contract and he just said i'm done so mm-hmm. yeah Dre, this has been great um i want to ask uh, one thing may go on the yeah. podcast or not but i just sure. noticed that you have a jujitsu shirt on mm-hmm. and with a lot of what we're talking so shot in the dark just because it's been up my alley are you a josh waitskin fan at all
0: yeah definitely it's fantastic his his podcasts i think the only public stuff he does is with tim ferris but the podcast interviews that Tim Ferriss has done with Waitzkin and going back to medical cognition Waitzkin has a fantastic book about learning how to learn I can't remember the name off the top of my head but yeah big I think fan. it's the
1: art it's think it's the art of learning I just finished it on great book on audio. Right? Um, it's, yeah I, so I, I saw that and we, we were talking and I was like I was like this is just going in that but yeah I, I really I really dug that book a lot and I'm trying to remember because there were so many interesting things that he talks about in that book that I started relating to sports and they're all leaving me now. But it was just mm-hmm. one of those I like was really geeking out in that book. And a couple of people in my circles hadn't talked that I'm a huge chess fan. And so obviously that's, you know, oh, right. I, I, of learned course, right up your alley. Football. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Waitzkin, Waitzkin talks a lot about and, and what he does, or I think maybe he's, I think he's just on a beach somewhere. I don't think he, he I think he's got his number he, he met his number, whatever it was to retire and live life on his own terms. But what he used to do um, is help elite performers perform just a little bit better, which at elite levels is meaningful, right? If Michael Phelps can get, you know, 0.4 seconds faster, that's huge. So weights can really specializes in taking people at 98%, in the 98th percentile to 99. And it's great to learn about that and, and I'm different Um, I I agree with his principles, but I'm different in that what I like doing is going from zero to say the 80th percentile, whether it's, so let's say it's directing an improv group or it's making films or it's learning jujitsu. It's, I, I like to get to, you know, be really good at something, be really capable at something and then go and learn something else. But it's still the same fundamental principles of how you learn, and how you improve on something. It's dedicated practice, feedback, having a good coach, et cetera. To that point though, isn't that like
1: the Tim Ferriss because he did the like, you know, try and pick up things really quickly and learn. And that's all Mm -hmm. sorts of fun. But yeah, I definitely had to ask on Waitzkin because as people of the box where geeks know, um, I'm I'm just a huge chess fan and all that. And Waitzkin is just such an interesting character. Mm. And that the movie, which a lot of people know, that's like all they know, it's so much more fascinating when you get in depth. And it's, you know, for those that don't know this, Josh Waitzkin was a child prodigy, um, probably the best junior player in the United States up till age 18, I would gather. I would guess based on the oncoming wave of great talent that came that he was not to be mean, never going to be a world world champion caliber player, but that's also like basketball and chess are so, ridiculous because think about that in any other field if you said i was the best at this until i was 18 and i was still Mm -hmm. top 100 in the world after i was eight but i'm never going to be able to make a living at this basically or make a good living because right what you're saying his consulting he has to make so much more money doing that than he could ever have made as a professional chess player even a u.s championship caliber you have to you have to the world championship caliber to, to be worth it and then basketball is the same, right? You're you're one of the best, but uh, yeah. So I I ran into that, and just all of this stuff is really fascinating, and I
0: like geeking out in it. So, Dre, I, mean, I know uh, we've got. I want time. to be mindful of your time, but but that does bring up a, a question. So that, that i have no idea what the answer is but I, i'd like your take on it. do you have a few minutes or do we need to cut it matter? oh sure
1: let's well let's yeah let's let this be the last topic Wind sure. down. i agree it's it's been great and then we can we can definitely if you're do some geeks is yeah. still going you're still going there is definitely more for a round two on, on 100 percent.
0: so you talk about chess and i guess i've i've put chess in my mind sort of in the same category um generally as poker right so um with poker today, you can get a lot more sims in, right, you can get a lot more simulations. And I have a poker, you know, the Apple poker app, um, and again, I, I, I never bet except when I had a house game, but you can just sort of move up the ladder because you can get so many repetitions in, but the fundamentals haven't really changed, right? The math is the math, and so people who knew the math 30 years ago, it's the same math today, and I guess that's the bin I put chess in as opposed to, say, something like basketball, where there has been a huge revolution in how we understand the game and how that's changed the game. Is, is, is So is chess more like basketball in that the way people play chess today is completely different from 30 years ago? Or is it more like poker where the math is the math and maybe we just have more reps now? Oh, that's,
1: that is such a great question. And I'm actually going to agree and disagree all over the place good so Love it. key thing really really early on in sloan arturo put a paper out there basically saying teams aren't taking enough threes mm. uh, paper was rejected you can find it on wages of wins google hates wages of wins now so don't use google but if you go to wages of wins itself and search on the search bar uh you'll be able to find it and i might send it along so the three-point shot has been in the NBA since the 1980s, right? So it came in in the 1979-1980 season, yep. yep. And that's been there the whole time, and mm. it's only free money. Recently. Free
0: money is sitting on the ground, and you're not picking it up.
1: And yeah, like I said, even as recently as, even as recently as what 2010, 2011, somewhere in that range is when Arturo put that paper to Sloan. Teams weren't doing it, and you you still had pundits say, you can't be a three point shooting team and win. What you were referring to, uh, have you read David Epstein's book? Um, let's see, let me get the title. He's a great author. He, one of the books he wrote is called the sports gene.
0: Oh yeah. Which I is about
1: him. he's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. And then range range is the book yeah. I want to talk about. Both here. of them are yeah. great. So what you're talking about, right. Then I know, know that back, back to learning how
0: to learn. They're both about learning yeah. how to learn.
1: Yeah. So the fields we're talking about, uh, for those that haven't read those books, he talks about wicked and kind environments. So mm. what you are saying is poker and chess are a kind environment. The rules stay the same, they've been the same forever. The The change in the game, the, the shift that we have seen is essentially what you're saying, that people have ha- now have access to supercomputers that can analyze the game more deeply than we were ever able to before, that have ability to run repetitions, have access to databases that they didn't. It used to be New York was the epicenter of chess in the United States because all of the best chess players were there. They were the people that, you know, we're subscribing to Russian chess magazines that had all of the chess books if you needed a if you needed a rare chess book you had to go to this one guy's house right because they were out of print whereas now you can go on Google and it's just right there that that's all changed i'd argue the nba is a lot like that the nba hasn't changed that much there have been some rule changes but really it's it's almost sad in that regard right the reason chess has improved is There have been essentially a technological advancement that has allowed us to access that extra information, whereas the extra information in basketball was that's worth three, that's worth two, three is worth more than two. That was right, right. That's (laughs) they they just did
0: kindergarten math, is what you're saying? Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) And so I think both of them are are still kind environments that you know we we know all the rules, and I think there has been. A shift in what skills are needed, but I I still think it's an argument. I know Arturo, myself, and Brian have made a lot. Is if you took Michael Jordan or Dr. J or Larry Bird and you trained them, so like from a young age, trained them in the modern system, they would still be great. The system would still support the players with their skill, you know, with their natural abilities and their skills and their mindset would still support them. There have been some changes just in strategy. It's just been kind of sad. So I, I would actually, I would actually say, the NBA is a lot like chess, and the bigger difference is just like, they finally got a computer, whereas chess kind of had, for lack of a better word, human computers for years. You had people, you had grandmasters spending hours and hours and hours analyzing these positions for other grandmasters, and then computers came along and said, hey, you don't need a human to do that. A computer can do that for you, and that's that's why we've seen such amazing, stellar play. And that's also why chess is changing from being these games where you sit down for hours and hours to the popular chess games, are you sit down for 10 to 15 minutes. Because if you give right. the top chess players hours and hours to play, it's boring, it's draws.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. Dre, this has been a real treat, a real joy for me. As I said in the email, I've subscribed to your podcast for years and um, you know, I take a, a big walk every day and you guys used to post um, almost weekly, I think, last year, or so it's you know, yeah, my, I was life has say gotten that in the I, way.
1: For for people in the future, if you're hearing this way in the future, there was this thing called uh, the coronavirus, and there was a COVID pandemic that changed everything for a year, and it's just, yeah, I think yep. I had a I had a kid um, which mm. changed some, you know, the podcast kind of started going bi-weekly occasionally when I just needed the time, and then COVID hit, and it's just like, and everything changed, so but I'm, I'm getting pretty psyched. I mean, uh, mm. you and Greg Steele are two people that have kind of popped up. The analytics have been around for years and so many people fell into that distortion field that I was talking about earlier on the show. It, it kind of seemed weird. And I was kind of a little despondent and it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know if there's just the right series of events happening recently or people at the right time. Cause you and Greg had been around since the beginning, as you mentioned, Greg Steele, yeah. Uh, over at Greek God of Stats. He was around mm-hmm. since the beginning with Dave Barry. You mentioned you were on the Wages of Wins bandwagon before me because I, I think I ran into it in 2008, if I recall. And just for whatever reason, maybe the right confluence of events, um, I'm seeing some more people pop up with stuff that I like, which is which is a really awesome place to be.
0: The the way I think about it is, um, was it Bill James? Is that the guy who sort of did the first baseball deep yeah, Bill stuff. James
1: uh, sabermetrician. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I think he sort of he published a physical newsletter. I published an e-newsletter. He published a physical newsletter in the mid '70s, and then eventually no one was interested, and he just stopped. And then it was in about 2000 that Billy Bean and Moneyball came along. So if Dave Barry's work is on that same trajectory, Dave Barry published in 2006. So we have, in, let's say, 25 years. We have until 2031 before anybody figures it out. Huh
1: maybe a little faster with the uh, technology i like that that, yeah. that is that is a fantastic place to end on and as mentioned i will i will gladly talk with you more because metacognition chess all this stuff a ton more to talk and
0: i i know i bit my tongue a few times so me too uh, well listen yeah. tell everybody where they can find your you and your work please
1: oh yeah so uh, i'm nerd numbers on uh twitter and chess.com if you like playing chess and then, of course, uh, as mentioned, uh, the Box Score Geeks. Uh, so that's boxscoregeeks.com. And then we have a podcast, the Box Score Geek Show. And then when we when we do it, we do it on twitch.tv forward slash nerd numbers. Um, but we have not been close. You know, It would be a fun world if we would do it live and you could have audience interaction. There was this brief period where we did kind of have that. And <laughs> we just have not been regular enough. But yeah, so twitch.tv forward slash nerd numbers as well.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Dre. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this this fluid. Yeah, geez, it's already four. <laughs> That's my conversation with Dre. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. In the episode, we reference the ebook that I wrote and published recently. That's called. That book is titled "My Journey into the World of Sports Gambling." And I've never, as I say in the in the podcast episode, I've never bet on sports. I didn't know anything about this world. And it was certainly an interesting adventure. So you can find that online at Amazon for 99 cents. My journey into the world of sports gambling by Ben Guest. Have a great day.